Welcome to the Business Exit Roundtable with Heath Franson, along with his guests, real experts with real ideas and actionable strategies for leveraging the wealth in your business. And now, here's the author of The Psychology of Money, the chairman of the Exit Planning Exchange and founder and CEO of Delta Business Services, your host, Heath Franson. What if you could know the future with confidence and certainty? With the current volatility in the economy and financial markets, wouldn't it be great to know when to buy a home, when to buy a car, when to make entrances and exits with your investments? You would never have to suffer through a market crash. Our guest today is Harry Dent, one of the foremost economists in the world. Harry Dent is the founder of Dent Research, an economic forecasting firm specializing in demographic trends. His mission is helping people understand change. Using exciting new research developed from years of hands-on business experience, Mr. Dent offers unprecedented and refreshingly understandable tools for seeing the key economic trends that will affect your life, your business, and your investments over the rest of your lifetime. Harry is also a best-selling author. In his book, The Great Boom Ahead, published in 1992, Mr. Dent stood virtually alone in accurately forecasting the unanticipated boom of the 1990s and the continued expansion into 2007. In his new book, The Demographic Cliff, he continues to educate audiences about his predictions for the next Great Depression, especially between 2014 and 2019, that he has been forecasting now for 20 years. Mr. Dent is the editor of the Survive and Prosper newsletter, as well as Economy and Markets and has created the H.S. Dent Financial Advisors Network. Mr. Dent received his MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was a Baker Scholar and was elected to the Century Club for Leadership Excellence. At Bain & Company, he was a strategy consultant for Fortune 100 companies. He has also been the CEO of several entrepreneurial growth companies and a new venture investor. Since 1988, he has been speaking to executives and investors around the world. He has appeared on Good Morning America, PBS, CNBC, CNN, Fox, Bloomberg, the whole host of shows, and has been featured in USA Today, Barron's Investors Business Daily, Entrepreneur, Fortune, Success, U.S. News and World Report, Business Week, The Wall Street Journal, American Demographics, Gentlemen's Quarterly, and Omni. And he won't admit it, but I think he's got a crystal ball. So, Harry, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Heath. All right. So tell us first, why demographics? Why are demographics so important? Well, you know, economists, it's important first because economists and most people don't understand it. Demographics is simple. We can see the future of our economy, the most important trends, when we're going to boom in Boston, when we're going to sell more cars or houses or anything you want to look at, just by looking at the predictable things people like we do. I mean, people uh, on average, you know, just like a life insurance actuary will say, well, the average person's going to die at 79.6. They don't know when you're going to die, but they know when the average is down to the decimal point. I can tell you the average person enters the workforce at age 20, some people at 18, some at 22, but on average 20. They get married for the baby boomers at 26. They have their average kid at 28. They buy their uh, first home at 31. They buy their biggest home at 41. They spend the most money at 46, they save the most and have the highest net worth at age 64, and I could go on and on and on. Potato chips peak at age 42, for crying out loud. So it's, it's one of the 
predictable things in economics, and it's something that economists pay no attention to. They, they didn't study demographics in school. I, I took three economics courses. I had an economics major, and I switched. I switched and started taking accounting and finance and marketing and management, everything about business. And business and consumers are what really drive our economy. Everybody thinks it's the government. The government just reacts. I mean, we have a big crisis, and the government prints a lot of money. We have massive inflation, and they tighten interest rates. That's what the government does. The government doesn't cause people to earn and spend money, have kids, buy houses. Uh, but 46 is the big number in demographics, if you have to pick one. That's when the average household spends the most money in their total lifetime. And for the peak of baby boomers born in 1961, that year was 2007. We predicted, starting in the late 80s, when I developed these demographic tools, that the baby boom would peak by late 2007, and we would go into a down period of demographic trends from 2008 to 2020 to 22. We predicted that 20-some years ago. It's that predictable, and, and that's how you can see trends over the rest of your lifetime. Now, that's not the only area we look at. We look at, for example, the geopolitical trends. I found in late 2005 a cycle that I had seen way back and wasn't sure it was that meaningful, but I found out it was a geopolitical cycle for 18 years throughout, I went back 150, 200 years on this, for about 18 years, everything will be hunky-dory. 1983 to 2000, that was 18 years when nothing went wrong in the world. We had one war with Saddam Hussein that lasted 100 hours, then we were out of there, over. Well, we know what happened in 2001. From 2001 through 2019, five years from now at least, we're in an adverse geopolitical cycle, and nothing could be more obvious than this. You know, we, we had the... Iraq War followed 9-11 and the Afghan War, then the Syrian Civil War and the Arab Spring and Tunisia, Libya and Egypt. And, and uh, you know, we got Ukraine and Russia and, and Hamas and Gaza and Israel and, and, and ISIS. You know, now it's like we've got an army and stuff. So mm -hmm. when this happens, uh, the price-earnings ratios on stock, the reason I, I put this cycle into our kit is because I found that Every 18 years, our price-earnings ratios are higher, and then they go lower. And, and when you see economists get on CNBC and major shows one after the next and say, hey, the market may look bubbly, but it's not overvalued. I'm like, you guys don't understand. You're not comparing apples and apples. In 1999 and 2000, when it got so overvalued, um, we were in the best demographic trends of the whole baby boom spending cycle, and the Internet was moving mainstream, high productivity, and we were in a very positive geopolitical cycle. Now we're in negative demographic trends, negative technology cycles, negative geopolitical. You can't compare now to 1999 and say, oh, well, stocks aren't as overvalued as they were. They are very overvalued compared to similar difficult demographic and geopolitical times like the 1930s and 70s. We're way overvalued compared to that. Then uh, there's other cycles we look at too, but these, these are predictable things. They are simple trends. It, what I tell people is the hard thing in economics is predicting exactly when this bubble is going to burst or exactly when this crash is going to happen because so many individual events can affect that. I can't predict when a tsunami is going to strike Japan or when uh, the biggest bank in Spain is going to blow up. But I know, you know, we know these things are going to happen and we know when they're more likely, but it's the short term that's hard to predict. If you're an investor, a business, or for your family, you can see 
the key trends, as I said in my intro, over the rest of your lifetime. I can tell you when we're going to boom and bust, when we're going to have inflation and deflation, which affects bonds and mortgage rates and all that sort of stuff, when we're going to have you know, good geopolitical cycles, when we're going to have bad, mm-hmm. when innovations are going to tend to be more powerful and move mainstream, and when they're going to kind of settle down until the next wave comes along. And we can tell right. you roughly when we'll have boom and bust cycles every 10 years. And so you have four critical cycles that you use that make up the DENT method. Tell us about the four critical cycles. Yeah, I, I kind of put it as a hierarchy. The, the first, it was the demographic cycles. I call it the generational spending wave. And then see how simple this is. We take the birth index, which I adjust for immigrants. I can do that with a computer model very accurately. Mm-hmm. And, and, and right. we move that birth index forward for whatever we want to predict, potato chip demand, you know, saving and wealth or spending, which is 46. We move forward that index 46 years, and it tells us when the economy is going to boom and bust. The, the big rising tide of baby boomers was from 1937 to 1961. On a 46-year lag, that gives you a rising boom from 1983 to 2007. Now, how accurate is that, number one, even more than I would have expected in, in retrospect? Mm-hmm. And how useful is it able to see these booms and busts in any country in the world decades in advance? I mean, that's literally, I mean, you could have I didn't develop this tool until 1988, but since then we've been able to predict roughly when our economy is going to be booming. But we saw the Japan fall in the late 80s. Nobody saw that. They were at the top of their cycle, peaked way before the U.S. and Europe. And what we're saying now, Heath, is that Europe is the next to go. Europe's already in trouble, and they haven't. They're, they're just starting to go down their demographic cliff later than the U.S. So that's number one, and that's the most important. Number two is this geopolitical cycle because it has such a big impact on price-earnings ratios and stock valuations. The third is an innovation cycle that, that uh, is positive for about 22, 23 years, and then it kind of flattens out. So when something like computers and Internet are moving mainstream, like in the 80s, 90s, and in 2000, that, that increases productivity on top of the generation aging. And then now we're flattening out. Everybody's got a smartphone. Everybody's on the Internet. doesn't mean it won't get better and social media won't do this and that, but we've seen that revolution for now. We had the same thing with automobiles in the early 1900s and railroads before that. Every 45 years, right. we see steamships peak in 1875, railroads, mm-hmm. 19, automobiles, 1965, and now the Internet. So this is a cycle that now – you know, was very favorable for the economy. And this doesn't get unfavorable when it switches, but it, it, you stop getting that productivity dividend. So that's the third one. And I've got mm-hmm. one more that's probably the most important. I just really discovered this year and a half ago. We used to have a decennial cycle from Ned Davis, a really good cycle guy uh, on Wall Street. Uh, but I found you know, it didn't work the last time. I mean, it should have been down 2010 to 12. It's down the first two and a half to three years of every decade. Well, I found there's a different reason for that, and the cycle's not 10 years. It's 10 years on average, but it actually oscillates, and it actually goes around solar radiation, which scientists study and predict because it has such big impacts on everything from agriculture Mm -hmm. and rainfall to sunshine, and it affects infrastructures, electronic infrastructure, satellites and stuff. This sunspot cycle, uh, again, it's 8 to 13 years, but the good thing is scientists track this and predict it pretty darn accurately. They were predicting it was going to peak late last year and it ended up peaking in February. So that's pretty darn close. But this was an irregular cycle. And when this cycle points down and it points down from 2014 into 2019 or 20, 
basically mm-hmm. 88%, I went back 150 years, 88% of financial crises, major stock crashes, depressions, things like that, occur in that down cycle. That is a stupendous correlation. And the last one, the last crash, 2000, 2002, came as that cycle turned down. And then the crash after that came right at the bottom of that cycle, 2008 to early 2009. So this is a powerful cycle that gives you a better idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, looking for certain downtrends like dem- demographic and geopolitical, but it's when this cycle turns down when you're most likely to get major stock crashes and, and crises. So this cycle is saying, hey, look out in the next five, six years. All four cycles point down at the same time from mid-2014 into early 2020 approximately. The only time that's happened in the last century was in the mid-70s and the early 30s when we had the two biggest financial crises and stock crashes in, in uh, the last century. So, so when all four of these point down, uh, you know, investors should get defensive. So it's, it's not a mystery. If this is practical research. You did your homework. You did your digging. You look back at history. You saw when the trends were similar at two other points in in the last hundred years or so, and the same thing. It's 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 like uh, Mark Twain says. He says history may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Right. It it does rhyme. That's a good way to put it. And um, that's actually how I found. I mean, the demographic. It took me from the early '80s studying demographics in my consulting work to 1988 to find the demographic thing, the spending wave, the generational spending wave. And that's the most important discovery. It still is on our work. Right. I found because of this rhyming factor, yeah, you get certain cycles, but there's always curveballs. And every time there'd be a curveball, I found this geopolitical cycle in the early 2000s because, you know, we, there was a first bubble and, and, and rhyming back with the early 1900s auto bubble and stuff, there should have been a second bubble higher and the next bubble was not as strong. The market did go up from 2002 to seven, as we expected, but it did went up half as much as I expected. So I said, okay, something's missing here. What's the difference between the roaring 20s and the roaring 2000s? And the biggest difference was positive geopolitical cycle in the 20s, negative in the, two, in the 2000s. And that's why the market didn't bubble up as much because the price earnings ratios don't go as high like they did in the 95 to 2000 bubble. So every time something doesn't quite go right, we end up getting a new cycle. And, and, and so it's taken me, you know, it took me about seven or eight years to get the most important insight and cycle. But ever since, I've, I've built the other ones, and now I've got what I feel like is a complete model. We take all four of these into account. Now I go back in history. There's nothing that we wouldn't have seen or, or, or very much. So it is, it is a more complete model, especially this sunspot cycle and, and I have to take a lot. I take a lot of time in my book and in presentation to explain this because people think, "Oh, sunspot, that's crazy." It is not crazy. I studied this in depth. I went back hundreds of years, and and Mm -hmm. and it's an unbelievable cycle and things that can help you get closer to timing shorter-term stuff because that is the hardest part, you know. And say, you know, it it explained to me why why the Fed was able to keep this bubble going as long as they did, because that cycle was favorable to them. But but it, it, it's going I don't see any way they can keep this bubble going now that we got all four cycles pointing down and they've already stretched this economy so much because this entire rebound has been artificial. If it weren't for all this money being pumped in and massive deficits mm-hmm. by governments around the world, we would have had a Great Depression already. And, and frankly, we would have been coming out the other side by now. 
Let me pause you right there. Harry, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back, listeners, with more of Harry Dent. Hey, everyone, it's Bill Black, the Exit Coach. And let's face it, handing over the reins of a business that you've been running for years is an emotional thing for sellers, and you want to know that your baby is in good hands. There's a company out there called Delta Business Services that's created a process to create certainty for a successful business exit, and you ought to know about it. Keith Bronson at Delta Business Services is someone that you ought to talk to. They've created a strategy that will take the uncertainty and the worry out of your business exit because they will buy your business and help with the transition and the transfer of the business. That's right. At Delta Business Services, they'll make sure that your exit strategy is pain and worry-free with their common sense personal approach. To find out more information, you just got to go to their website and check it out. It's at deltabusinessservices.com. That's deltabusinessservices.com. Or contact Heath Bronson at 210-369-4161. That's 210-369-4161. And we're back with more Harry Dent. Harry, I have read your book, The Demographic Cliff. Let's talk about some of the issues that you discuss in your book. You're adamant that this is a bubble in stocks, that it will burst. And and one of the things that I know, having studied economics and economic trends for such a long time, is that while we can't accurately predict exactly when the turning points will occur, we can, once once certain indicators surface, we can judge by those indicators what is likely to happen in the near term. And I know that the quantitative easing cannot sustain. It cannot go on. But what are some of the turning points? What are some of the signal posts that you can reasonably predict for our listeners out there that that we need to look for before things turn a different direction? Well, you know, there's a couple things we look at. The first thing, I, I every time I get on uh, the media or give a presentation, I throw up what I call the megaphone chart. And this is a similar mm-hmm. pattern to how the stock market peaked between 65 and 72 when the last generation was peaking and spending and turning down. Governments always try to stimulate and fight a downtrend at first. And like you said, they never succeed in the end. But they do. And the megaphone pattern is very simple. You get a series of highs where each stock market run or bull market takes you to higher highs, but each correction after each peak takes you to lower lows. So higher highs and lower lows. So we've already seen a peak in 2000 and a low in 2002. And then we saw a higher peak in 2007, lower low in early 2009. Now we're in the last peak because you only get three of these by this pattern. Mm-hmm. And we're right at mm-hmm. the top of that trend line at 17,300 recently. We've been saying that the round Dow 17,200, 300, there's strong resistance here. We may continue to edge up a little more, but this line says only a quarter of a percent a month. So This is telling us this bubble is getting close to peaking, and it's also giving us a rough target. To go back down to the bottom trend line, we'd have to go just below 6,000. So imagine the Dow going in the next two, two and a half years, which is typical for a major crash like this, from 17,300 roughly down to 5,800. That is a 65% drop and, and substantially higher than the crash, which wiped out most people, in 2008 and 2009. So that's one thing uh, we look at. We also look at 
there, there's we look at we compare this to past bubbles because bubbles have a trajectory. They start mm-hmm. to go up and then they go up more and more exponentially. And the best analogy I've heard is like dropping pebbles of sand onto a floor. You build a mound and the mound gets steeper and steeper. You can tell when the mound's getting ready to go, but one grain of sand, just one grain of sand at some point mm-hmm. will cause avalanche of the whole mound. That's the way bubbles right. work. This is telling us we're close. We look at these past bubbles. We even have a theoretical bubble pattern. It's been saying the S&P ought to go to about 2000, 2020. Well, we just did that. We just hit 2019 on this last run. So these things say we're getting close. We also look for divergences because when you're getting close to the top of a bull market run, investors will get more selective and start going for the large cap stocks and start shunning the small caps. Well, we've seen that these Russell 2000s, 8 to 9% recently off of its top, while the, while the Dow and S&P were only down like 2 or 3%. So this is a sign we're getting close. Now, again, you know, I think we either just peaked or we may get a, if we get a little more substantial correction here and go up and make one slight new high, that would be an even uh, clearer pattern. That's another thing. In 2007, we had a, a, a peak in the summer of 2007. We had a 9 10% correction. Then we went up to a slight new high. The small caps didn't follow. And that was a sign we were peaking. So that'd be the ideal scenario for me. But it's the, the thing we tell people, Heath, is, is, you know, in the short term, we're always guessing as, as educated as we can guess. You know, you mm-hmm. can never be 90 or 100% in the short term. And, and I'm telling people, since I think the gains are so little from here on out and, and the downside is so bad, and, and you've got to remember, if you go back to uh, uh, 2000, when the NASDAQ first rolled over, the first correction in just a matter of several months, three or four months, was 40%. So, so mm-hmm. when this thing cracks, it's like with a cracked car. And I tell people, if I was an investor, I'd be getting out systematically now and give up. Oh, yeah, maybe you give up another 1%, 2 3% or something like that. But that's nothing compared to what could happen if all of a sudden we had a flash crash and things were down 10 or 20 and you know, that sort of thing. So I think mm-hmm. we're seeing enough signs that we're really close. Somewhere between recently and the next few months, this bubble's going to peak and burst. And, and again, I remind people there's a, there's a certain amount of smart analysts, they're a minority, saying, hey, this market's bubbled up too much. We've got to have a 20% correction in the next year. To me, that's a given. I'm not saying 20% correction. I'm saying bubbles don't correct, they burst. And we're looking mm-hmm. for a five percent correction probably into late 2016 or so wow that's massive tell us about what you what you foresee in the real estate market i know we've been talking mainly about the stock markets but what do you what do you foresee in real estate markets i live in san antonio for example uh what do you what do you foresee well, you know, at least you're in Texas. That's a better place. You know, one of our principles in Chapter 5 in the demographic clip, I have a whole chapter on bubbles. You can see all the main bubbles throughout history. I've got 10 principles of bubbles that happen every time and totally consistent with this one. I also have Chapter 3, a whole chapter on real estate. And it's called Real Estate Will Never Be the Same Again. I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. It's not just people buy most of the real estate they're going to buy in their life cycle between age 27 and 41. That's a short period of time. And then that's where the baby boomers were when real estate was doing so well. But what we have for the first time in history, and it's unique to real estate, is you have a smaller, a slightly smaller generation in the U.S., much smaller in Europe and Japan, but you have 
a smaller generation following a larger one. And since real estate lasts forever, that means when people die, if baby boomers start to die faster than echo boomers or millennials are buying homes, that means you're going to have net contraction and demand, and that's what our charts show. I, I now take the number of peak buyers at age 41 and subtract the dyers, I call them. It's 79 on average. And that showed that real estate's already peaked a few years ago. It's come down. You would have expected a bounce into 2014. And from 2015 on, the trends turn back down as more and more baby boomers die. And because and, dyers are sellers. There's just no two ways around it. So the trends in real estate are, are going to get weaker. And, you know, another principle in Chapter 5, bubble, the greater the bubble, the greater the burst. So I tell people in real estate, which is very different from stocks because it's so much you know, regionally driven, look at what your real estate was worth at the beginning of January 2000 when the bubble started from my calculation, whether it's Manhattan or San Francisco or San Antonio or Tampa where I live. And, you know, when real estate prices get to that point again or a little lower, then you can feel good about buying long term. There aren't many places where that's the case. But, but in the case of Texas, outside of downtown Austin, not too far from you, where there is an, an incredible bubble because their infrastructures are so weak, most of Texas is not that overvalued compared, you know, compared to Florida or New York or California, the most more expensive states, or, or Washington State. So, so I'd feel much better buying uh, foreclosed real estate or a house that's a good deal in San Antonio or Dallas than I would in San Francisco or New York. In fact, New York's just going to get clobbered. Wow. Okay. So, so again, a lot of, this is a big illusion, I find. First of all, people are emotionally attached to real estate and gold. I can talk people out of anything else, but those two darn things are really hard to talk people out of. Don't be emotionally attached. Hey, maybe to your home, but what people don't get, they people think, well, I'm in New York or I'm in San Francisco. I'm in one of the greatest places in the world. This will never go down. No, the greatest places always bubble the most because of the huge supply, uh, demand versus limited supply. And, and when they mm -hmm. burst, they burst the most. And, and for example, in the Great Depression where we didn't have a bubble in real estate, just a good market because there wasn't the ability to speculate back then, the average home in the U.S. went down 26%, which was considered massive back then. How could this happen? People think real estate can't go down. New York went down 61% and took a decade longer, more than a decade longer, to get back to those areas. So, uh, you know, people who think I'm in New York, and, and I tell you, don't, you can't believe how many people told me in Sydney, Australia, or, or Tokyo, Japan, or Vancouver, Canada, or New York, or San Francisco, or Miami, real estate can't go down here because we're such a special place. If you're in a special place, you need to be especially concerned. Right. Just when people start saying that, that's when it happens, right? Yeah. Well, that, you know, that's you know, the whole banking thing. People look back and say, "How could the banks been so crazy? No, no down payments, no doc loans. You know, just just mm -hmm. put down on income. We don't care." It's because everybody got convinced um, in in the early 2000s that real estate would never go down. When people think something can't go down, it is guaranteed to go down. We're on with Harry Dent, the first of a two-part treatment. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to ExitCoachRadio.com, the show for age 50-plus business owners. 
We're interviewing over 250 professional advisors for their tips, ideas, and precautions so you can be well-planned. We upload new 20-minute interviews and one-minute highlights every day at ExitCoachRadio.com. Come listen for a minute. And we're back with Harry Dent. So we were talking about real estate. I want to move on to some of the other the other aspects of your economic forecast in the demographic cliff. Let's talk about China. China has the greatest economic and real estate bubble in modern history, and it's already starting to burst. How does someone capitalize on this downturn? <laughs> well, it, what I see happening is I think China is going to be the biggest trigger. We, The U.S. was the trigger for the subprime crisis that did you know, cause the last downturn. Now, you can't have a global downturn unless the demographics and debt trends are unfavorable, and they were, but it takes a trigger. China has this incredible bubble. The government has overbuilt everything 10 to 15 years ahead. 230 million people have moved from rural areas to cities with no skills. They're not even registered citizens. They're like illegal Mexicans in the United States. They don't have access to services. Real estate there has bubbled up much higher than any place in the world. Um, and like you say, we've been warning for years, this bubble's going to burst it, it could, because the government made it much worse. You get natural bubbles with just people buying stuff once it goes up like we had in the U.S. But when governments lower interest rates or governments encourage overbuilding or governments guarantee loans, then they just add to the bubble. So. This bubble is starting to burst. You've had developers start to fail. You've had some bonds start to blow up over there. Um, you, you, you've got, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what they call it, you know, shadow banking going out of control, and the government can't control it. Uh, and, and developers, for the first time there, are discounting 20 to 40%. And, and people don't understand that the wealthy Chinese – save 60 to 70% of their income, and they put most of it in real estate. They're not like us. They don't buy stocks and bonds. They've either got cash in the bank and most of it in real estate. So these, their wealth is incredibly tied to this bubble. This bubble burst. The wealth in China is going to evaporate faster than it did with Japan in the early 90s when they their real estate bubble burst, and then they're buying around the birth. I think what China is going to do is start a real estate bubble burst that is going to domino around the world. So, so the best way is to, especially in the pricey cities, like I said, New York, San Francisco, Miami, mm -hmm. those type of get out of the way. These are the places mm -hmm. going to get hit the most. It's not going to affect San Antonio as much as cities like that in Seattle and Vancouver and Toronto and, and you know, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. So, so I think this is a trigger, uh, you know, uh, I don't think most people here are going to short the, the Chinese stock market, and it's already underperformed the rest of the world dramatically. This, this, the Chinese stock market is actually telling people, you may think our economy is great, but we don't, because we, the stock market values earnings. All that China gets is growth. Government wants growth at all costs, and when you overbuild mm -hmm. capacity in industry and real estate and infrastructures, then basically it, it raises your debt and your cost, and it means your profits go down. So the Chinese stock market is, down, is still near its 2008 lows, despite this incredible recovery everywhere else, because there's no profits in China. And if you've got no profits, your, your boom is not sustainable. That's true. Everything has to be from credit expansion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Germany. Germany has some of the worst demographic trends 
uh, more uh, worse than even Japan had in the 1990s when you called their downturn. Germany is supposed to hold up the European Union. What's going on here? And as an investor, what are the plays? Yeah, you know, this, this is a big one, Heath, because, you know, people, I get, I'm most known for predicting Dow 10,000 by 2000, you know, predicting mm-hmm. a bubble and boom that nobody saw. Everybody thought the U.S. was a sunset country and Europe and stuff. But, I mean, back then, my biggest forecast was that we, in the late 80s, we said Japan's going to crash while everybody else booms. I mean, Japan looked like the golden country, just like China looks like today. Uh, and mm-hmm. we could see demographic trends going off a cliff, you know, way ahead of the U.S. and Europe. And so it was obvious to us. Well, Germany is worse, as you just said. I mean, from 2014, already this year, we see every time Germany comes out with a statistic, oops, it's weaker than we thought. Oops, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. we didn't expect that. You're going to see more and more and more of this. Their demographics go straight down from 2014 to 2022, faster than any country in the world, faster than Japan's did in the 1990s. So everybody's expecting Germany to hold up the EU. It's the largest country. It's got the strongest financial structure. It's the one behind, you know, the country that has the most fund to bail out. Well, how are they going to bail out Europe if their economy is tanking? And that's what we right. see happening. That's going to be China bubble bursting and Germany's economy steadily weakening. They're going to be the two surprises of the next year or two that most economists are just not going to see because, again, they're looking at the symptoms instead of the underlying causes, and we're looking at the causes. And there's just, there's just no way. Germany's a strong exporter, but, but, hey, exports are slowing for China and everybody around the world with slow growth, and, and Germany has the worst demographics. So, man, you know, if somebody wants to short the DAX, the German stock market, uh, be my guest. That'd be a good place to do some hedging or, or to make some money on the downside if you're willing to take some risk. That market, the German market, is still you know five percent off its highs above ten thousand, and that that market you know has the most risk in the world. But but of course, investors see Germany as this stable beacon. Well, we don't any more than Japan uh, in the 1990s. All right. So let's bring it back to the U.S. Car sales, they're due to peak in 2014 and declined for many years ahead, just like housing did many years ago based on demographics. Let's talk about that. Yeah, you know, the very interesting, uh, we, we collect data from the government. They have 600 categories they measure every year, uh, and we've been doing this for a long time, but we had to put together 10 years of data to get a better look at, at individual product trends, to get enough data to, to get down to when these things peak. And what we have, the overall spending peaks at 46, but housing peaks in the late 30s, early 40s, about 41, and then cars peak at the later end before spending really tanks at 53. If you take the peak baby boomers in 1961, move forward 53 years for the peak in car spending, that means, mm-hmm. you know, by late this year. So it's not a surprise to us that autos has been one of the strongest sectors in this recovery. And housing, of course, continues to be one of the weaker sectors. But autos are going to peak and go off a cliff, and nobody's going to see this coming. But there's a second thing related. He, the everyday person, I'd say 80% of households in this country peak around that 46 time period. But the top 20% who are college-educated typically, low unemployment rates still, um, they're not you know, facing high unemployment. These people go to school 
later, you know, the workforce later, and then their kids go to school later on average. They peak in the early 50s, around 53, with this car cycle. So the wealthy have still been spending. The Fed stimulus ends up going into the stock market instead of the bank loans to everyday people, and the stock market's gone up and, and really benefited these top 20% of people that, that own probably about 90% of the stocks and financial assets outside of real estate. So they've been doing well. They've been holding up the economy while the average person in most surveys says, hey, we've never seen a recovery. What are you, what are you talking about? We're still in a recession from their point of view. These people fall off starting next year, and especially in 2016. So, you know, these are the surprises. China, uh, Germany, car sales weaker than expected, and the wealthy finally stopped spending. Now, now mm-hmm. who's the going to uh, stimulate into spending? They've got nobody left. So that begs the question. To 16 looked very ominous to us from the right. fundamental underlying trends. The Fed is tapering into this. They think everything's hunky dory because they don't understand the economy. They just don't. I mean, they're smart people, highly educated, but they, I always say, don't listen to people who've never run a business or never had sex. And I'd say that goes for both for most <laughs> economists. And, well, they're, they're simply looking in the wrong place, right? I mean, they're, they're not looking at the practical facts and the underlying causes and the truth. They're looking at uh, their, their hocus-pocus. Yeah, it's like the Titanic. If you're looking at the tip of the iceberg, you won't see the part that's going to tank you, you know? They're right. not. They're mm-hmm. looking at the symptoms. They look at interest rates, and they look at currency exchange rates, and they look at short-term inflation, and they look at GDP. None of this matters. And gee, all these indicators can look just perfect at the top, like they did in 1989 for Japan, or 1999 mm-hmm. or early 2000 for the U.S. If you're looking at these short-term indicators and the symptoms, you are not going to see a bubble burst or a downturn coming. You've got to look around the corner, and demographics allows you to Look around the corner. Geopolitical cycles tell you, I mean, anybody thinks we're going to have a good resolution in the Middle East or or Africa or Russia uh, doesn't understand this geopolitical cycle. This cycle says things are going to get worse for another five, maybe six years, and then suddenly, mark my words on this, if you remember that far out, in 2020 or 21, all of a sudden things are going to get better in the world and nobody's going to have a clue why. Except you. Except me. And you for listening. (laughs) Our listeners are getting a dose of education. Thank you so much, Harry. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with our last of of, uh, our segment here with Harry Dent on the Business Exit Roundtable. Hey everyone, it's Bill Black, the Exit Coach, and let's face it, handing over the reins of a business that you've been running for years is an emotional thing for sellers, and you want to know that your baby is in good hands. There's a company out there called Delta Business Services that's created a process to create certainty for a successful business exit, and you ought to know about it. Keith Bronson at Delta Business Services is someone that you ought to talk to. They've created a strategy that will take the uncertainty and the worry out of your business exit because they will buy your business and help with the transition and the transfer of the business. That's right. At Delta Business Services, they'll make sure that your exit strategy is painful 
sane and worry-free with their common-sense personal approach. To find out more information, you just got to go to their website and check it out. It's at deltabusinessservices.com. That's deltabusinessservices.com. Or contact Heath Bronson at 210-369-4161. That's 210-369-4161. And we're back with more Harry Dent. Harry, I've got a question for you. This is one one of the questions that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have right now. Most of our listeners are business owners, their retirement age, 50 plus. They're looking to exit their businesses and do it smartly. What advice would you have for someone who had a business here at home in, in the United States and was looking to exit their business? Well, you know, first of all, I would do it as soon as possible. This is one of the things I stress in financial planning. You have to have a different strategy for each season, spring, summer, with inflation, fall, bubble boom, winter, deflation, shakeout. These seasons are very different, and we're coming into the most difficult season for businesses and, you know, shakeout in businesses. A lot of businesses going under. Valuations are going to go way down. And investments, bubbles are going to burst and, and not bounce back for a long time. Um, but the other thing is you have, you know, the, you have your life cycle of when you want to retire or you want to, or you're going to have a midlife crisis or you're going to have kids or your kids are going to get out of college, whatever. But the economy has its life cycle too. So mm-hmm. a person might be sitting here saying, let's say 55 and saying, well, when I turn 65, I want to sell my business and move to Arizona. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. I say, if you're looking at selling your business down the road, Given the type of downturn we have, I would I would be looking to sell my business now, and 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 then reinvest the money uh, in something that can do better because the value of your business could be a third or a quarter of what it is if you wait five years from now or ten years from now when you say oh now's when I want to sell it for my own reasons. So now if you want to hand it down to your kids and and keep it, well that's fine too. But you got to hunker down. you got to understand there's going to be the biggest shakeout we've seen since the 1930s. And, and the good part of this is the businesses that are lean and mean, that, that focus on things they can dominate, somebody's going to survive in all the important sectors. A couple of companies are going to survive, and your competition is going to fall. So you're going to be able to buy mm-hmm. out your competition or absorb their market share or their most important assets at pennies on the dollar. So there's a way to prosper if you see this downturn and shakeout coming and, and, and are ahead of your competitors, somebody said, you know, if a bear is chasing you, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your friend. <laughs> and that's the way it is. So that's what you do if you want to keep your business long-term and hand it to your kids. If, if your kids aren't interested, I would sell your business now as soon as possible while you can get the most for it. It doesn't matter if you think you can – grow 20% in the next five years, the valuation of most businesses is going to go down 50 to 80% just because of the economic cycle. Right, right. Well, knowing what you know about the economy and businesses, what businesses would you say are going to thrive in this, what is probably going to be a coma economy or, or a depressed economy, certainly? Well, you know, again, you look at generations. And and that's the good thing about micro-demographics. There's always something booming. The obvious one is healthcare. With the baby boomers aging, most healthcare spending, pharmaceuticals, vitamins, wellness, uh, grow into the mid to late 70s. Pharmaceuticals literally peak at age 77. The average person weighs the most. 
at age 60, which will be a good growth market into the next decade for people. You know, that's why you see so many weight loss commercials on TV uh, and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, RVs, car sales are going to tank, and guess what's going to grow faster than any time in cycle? From age 53 to 60 is when most people buy a recreational vehicle. So that's going to be a bright spot in a, in a bad economy. Um, funeral homes. I know that's kind of dismal, but if somebody said, hey, you can invest in a funeral home franchise or something and don't have to run the damn thing and cremate people, that would be great. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, the number one thing for real estate and development, nursing homes and assisted living facilities. There's never enough of them in good times. The baby boom doesn't start to enter that cycle until 2017, a few years from now, and that, that will be the latest stage thing to boom. So, so you look at things people do. I, I, aging people like convenience stores. They like pharmacies. You know, so, so there's, you know, you say, the thing is, what are people going to do in their 60s, 70s and 80s. They also buy life insurance, you know, and things like that, financial planning. So those are the industries where, where demographics will be in your favor. And, and you're going to do best if you follow the baby boomers because it's, it's a much stronger trend than the millennials. But you also turn around and say, well, what are these millennials going to do as they enter the workforce? Well, they're going to want apartments, and then they're going to want affordable starter homes. You know, they're going to spend a ton of money on child care services and, and on and on and on. So, but I like I like businesses that follow the baby boom because they are what has been called historically the pig moving through the python. They're like a 10-foot wave versus the generation before them, the Bob Hope generation. If you look on our graphs, it's like a 3-foot wave, and the millennial following them is like a 5-foot wave. So, so everything the baby boomers do at a different life cycle is going to be the best place to focus a business if you're going to keep your business. All right. And, and, and for people buying businesses as well, correct? Yeah, let's say there is a – I don't want to buy anything right now, but let's say there is – I'm right and there's a crash in the next couple of years, and it dials down at 5500 to 6000 and you say, oh, wow, look at this. I can buy businesses for $0.20 cents on a dollar. Buy businesses mm-hmm. in the healthcare sector. You know, buy a vitamin company or buy a, you know, a, a pharmacy franchise or a pharmacy or things like that. I mean, buy things that are in the right sectors. Um you know, we look overseas, like, uh, you know, India would be the first place I'd buy. They have some of the strongest demographics. They're, they're still early in their urbanization, which is the strongest uh, factor mm-hmm. for emerging countries. China's overbuilt everything. India's underbuilt and underurbanized. So, you know, there's certain places I would look to invest as an investor or as a business, you know, once we see this crash and, and – because the worst tends to come early on, like in the Great Depression. The worst was from 1930 to 33. Well, we were in an off and on depression into the early 40s, but, you know, you could have started investing in things, uh, you know, even real estate in after that first crash. So, so same with business and investment. I think there's going to be some huge opportunities by late 2016, early 2017, and that's when you want to look at demographics. Why, why buy something in a bad demographic trend when you can buy a business 20 cents on the dollar? That's in a great demographic trend. Important information for our listeners. Harry, I want you to tell us a little bit about the newsletter, Boom and Bust, which I subscribe to religiously. I just got my copy. Uh, I always look forward to it because it tells me stuff that I don't know. I also want you to talk about economy and markets and also tell us about your conference next month. Okay. Yeah, Boom and Bust is our, is our primary newsletter. We have one above that called uh, The Leading Edge. 
But Boom and Bust is our most popular newsletter. It's very affordable. I think it's like $98 or something like that. And, but then we have a free newsletter. Economy and Markets is a day. It used to be called Survive and Prosper. We changed the name to Economy and Markets. It is a daily kind of one-page, one-chart newsletter. It's, it's for people to get to know us and show how we think differently. And like you say, we, we just mm-hmm. present information. People say, I didn't know that. I didn't know cars peaked at age 53, and this, you know, this is the best year for cars. I, mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't know this sort of stuff. We do that so people can get to know us. You can just be on that newsletter. All you have to do is go to harrydent.com, put in your email, and you're on that newsletter. And again, you can take that as long as you want till you say, "Hey, these guys do sound interesting." Um, okay, I want to go to Boom and Boss or one of our other uh, newsletters. And yes, once a year. Uh, aimed at our subscribers largely, but anybody can come. We have a three-day conference. Last year it was in La Jolla, California with George Gilder as our keynote speaker. This year it's in Miami and South Beach at the Lowe's Hotel, October 16th to 18th. Our keynote speaker is David Stockman, and boy, that was a good find. I, this guy gets paid a lot to speak, and, and, and we got him to speak at a more reasonable fee that we could afford because I said, I'm going to promote the hell out of your book, and we have. And he's got a great book out called The Great Deformation. He's going to be the keynote speaker. We're going to have a lot of speakers on alternative investments, because one of the things we're telling people, which is unique, is when you see uh, a bubble boom burst, like in the roaring 20s to 30s or now, everything goes down. There is no place to hide except the highest quality bonds in the U.S. dollar versus other currencies. I mean, so you have to get in investments that don't correlate with stocks or can make money in up and down markets. And so we'll have a number of people speaking to to show you things you can choose from if you want to do something different rather than just being cash. And I'll tell you, just being in cash and letting the bubble burst and then buying things at at, at lifetime bargain rates is is a good Mm -hmm. strategy. But there's also other strategies uh, in the downturn. So I'll be speaking. My partner, Rodney Johnson, who's also in the economy and markets and boom and bust. Adam O'Dell is our technical analyst, and he's got an incredible uh, 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 investment uh, system called Cycle 9. Uh, and then a right. lot of other speakers and David Stockman. And also we have one of the best cycle experts in the world, Richard Mogi. I, uh, we, we met with him because we may do an investment model with him, but but he agreed to speak at the conference. So I'm like, between David Stockman and, and Richard Mogi, that's some that's some great outside uh, uh, input on top of what we deliver. And again, the dates in Miami? October 16th to 18th. I think it starts Thursday at 1 o'clock on the 16th and ends about 5 to 6 o'clock on Saturday the 18th. And, and I think the best place to go there is dentresearch.com for that. All right. Good information for our listeners. And tell us about your book. Your latest book is The Demographic Cliff, How to Survive and Prosper in the Deflation of 2014 to 2019. It sits on my desktop. It's my go-to guide for demographic information. Uh, Dent Research is our de facto demographics department at Delta Business Services. Uh, It's wonderful, great information. Tell us more about that book. Well, you know, that the theme of the book, you know, a lot of people know about our, you know, our spending wave in the U.S. and, you know, how it booms into 2007 and turns out. But in this book, the theme is, look, we're going to see more and more countries go off this demographic cliff or this demographic slowdown. It didn't, you know, baby boom happened around the world, but it peaked first in Japan, then in the U.S., 
Next in Europe, and the one, some of the last countries to go are places like South Korea, but they're all going to peak and go down. So, you know, central banks keep thinking, well, if we can just get over this financial crisis we have and get some confidence going, we'll get back to escape velocity. It's not going to happen. The demographic trends only get worse in more and more countries, especially in Europe and East Asia, and the affluent sector of the United States is going to kick in next. We look at Japan. We say, look, what has happened? Japan went through this crisis before we did. Their real estate bubble burst, and nobody thought it ever would. Their stocks went down 80% before they bottomed. That's where ours are going long term. We can learn from the Japanese and see what happens. Mm -hmm. But the most important insight from the Japanese, they had their millennial generation come along starting in 2003, and they didn't really have a boom because they never let their debt deleverage. They never cleaned house like we did in the 1930s. We came roaring out of that. So I call that chapter called Following Japan into a Coma Economy. When you do endless stimulus, and just for example, since Japan's been stimulating much longer than us, Japan's central bank balance sheet is at 50% of GDP. They have created that much money to fill in the hole. In the U.S., after the most unprecedented money printing in history, we're only at 25%. In Europe, it's something like 20 to 25%. So Japan has been stimulating forever. If you keep relying on stimulus, you never come out of the coma. You go into a coma, you're on life support, you never come out of it. It, 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 it works in the short term. It, it keeps you from going into a deeper depression or for banks to fail. But when those banks fail, loans get written off. That, that relieves cash flow for consumers and businesses and your debt ratios, and you end up coming out stronger than ever. Just like I talked about these business shakeout, businesses shake out, the strong survive, the weak get cast out, and you come out stronger than ever, and the businesses survive are stronger than ever. So there's a reason for this winter season, and governments are fighting it. We talk about real estate, why it'll never be the same, as I said earlier. We look at public and mm -hmm. private the key is the private debt, Heath, not the public. Mm -hmm. Private debt is two to three times as high in most countries as the government debt. So we look at countries around the world, and guess who's most in debt? Ireland, Japan, and the U.K. U.K. looks like the best country in Europe right now. When, when things go bad there, they've got the highest debt ratios by far, and they're going to be in the most trouble, and they're going to be in even more trouble if Scotland eventually decides to leave. And then we look at financial bubbles. People are just... People just don't get bubbles. And when we're in bubbles, we go into denial. The hardest thing, I, I beat on people in presentations and show them bubble after bubble. i got a whole chapter on this. And then, of course, we look for strategies and businesses. We look at overseas and when the emerging countries, which look good or bad, and then we look at uh, business strategies. And we say, here's what the government ought to do. Instead of killing the golden goose, they ought to facilitate this restructuring of debt. The governments are basically... And this is going to be David Stockman's theme at our conference. They're basically killing capitalism. The thing that made us wealthy, they're, they're not going to let the economy rebalance. They don't want any pain, mm -hmm. so we get no gain in the future. Hence a coma economy. No pain. Yeah. No growth. Economy. That's the worst thing for me. I'd rather we have this crisis and get it over with. If, if they never let mm -hmm. us have this crisis, it doesn't mean stocks won't go down in real estate because both have happened in, in, in Japan despite but it means you get in this coma economy. Japan has basically been at zero growth, zero inflation for two decades now. Coma. That's not good. Harry, we will put a link on our site to your website, harrydent.com. Thank you so much 
for being on the Business Exit Roundtable. We really appreciate your time, and I encourage our listeners to visit you in Miami in October. That's going to be time well spent, going to be very valuable information. You have some top-shelf speakers coming, and and I know Dent Research, they are a world-class organization. Harry hits a huge percent of the time with his predictions. They're a class act, and we really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Heath. All right. You take care. God bless you. Okay. Bye-bye. And a parting word to our listeners. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. That's going to do it for our show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you heard something helpful and useful that you can take action with in your future planning. A big thank you to my guest, Harry Dent, and to our sponsors. I want to thank my assistant, Tammy DeLue. I also want to thank Bill Black, along with the entire team at Exit Coach Radio Network, for all of their support in helping make the Business Exit Roundtable happen. And this show would be incomplete if I didn't thank my team at Delta Business Services for all of their encouragement, wisdom, and help in doing this. The Delta team rocks. And if you're an astute business owner looking for a buyer, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Please visit the website at www.deltabusinessservices.com or call us at 210-369-4161 for more information. Remember, we update content daily on the site. So please visit us often and tell your friends to find us at ExitCoachRadio.com. We're here to help you, our hero, the private business owner, with ideas, tips, and precautions so you are well-planned and get what you're going after. Thank you again. God bless you. And cheers to your exit success. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Roundtable with Heath Franson, featuring real experts with real ideas about planning for a spectacular life that's more exciting and prosperous. Set your calendar and make the appointment to join us again next week when we'll solve more common problems faced by business owners who want to exit on the Business Exit Roundtable.